Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. Psychology. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of studying the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage. Alongside being a stand-up comedian for the last 10 years has led me here today, discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy with today's very special guest, the absolutely brilliant Andrew Doyle. Andrew, how are you today? I'm all right. I'm a bit tired, but I'm okay. Good, good. Well, as normal on Psychomedy, we won't be looking at each other for the duration of the chat. Andrew, you know how much I love you as a person and as a comedian. I think I first saw one of your our shows in 2011, the Crash Course in Depravity show. Yeah. Yeah, I think your writing is brilliant. You know, you talk about interesting things, you're funny, um, but you're also, and this is what I particularly love about you, you're, 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 you're surprising and interesting things tend to happen in your shows over and above the jokes. I'm sure you remember that show, The Crash Course in Depravity. Yes, that, um, that was the first solo show I did. That's yeah. going back a bit now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, more recently, you've diversified hugely from straight stand-up with your work on Jonathan Pye and Titania McGrath. Um, but is that something that was on your mind from the start of your career, that you wanted to do something more than just telling jokes? Um, I've always done other things, so I, I haven't... A stand-up was one of the things that I was doing, one of the outlets that I had. So I also was writing plays and um, writing musicals and that kind of thing. So uh, sketches as well. But stand-up was something, I think, uh, at the back of my mind, I always wanted to do, mm. certainly from childhood. But uh, it wasn't only it wasn't ever only going to be the only outlet, let's put it that way. Just another form of theatrical expression. Yeah. So you mentioned childhood. It was on your mind from childhood, was it, stand-up? Just because I loved it so much. I loved watching it. Mm. So that's why. What kind of stuff did you like watching? Uh, my favourite stand-up was Victoria Wood. Uh, and I used to watch her uh, TV shows um, repeatedly, incessantly. Uh, recorded them and memorised them. Memorised the scripts. Memorised the routines. Uh, and and uh, consequently, I feel that when I started doing stand-up, I, I, I was sort of borrowing a lot of her rhythms not the jokes, but the rhythms of the way that she spoke and, and, and that kind of thing, and, uh, which I think a lot of stand-ups do early on, don't they? They, they, they san- end up sounding like the people they like the most, and then yeah. they have to sort of work their way out of that instinctive, imitative 
uh, quality that we all have, I think. Mm. Almost exactly but, sometimes. Sometimes you see stand-ups and you go, are you doing an impression of that person? Yeah, exactly. But it was people like her and Joe Brand I really loved and uh, Rita Rudner. Uh, so it was the, the, the ones that I would watch sort of quite endlessly. Yeah. Nice, nice. And in terms of the kind of, as I say, the slightly subversive or the... The, the things outside of the jokes was that was that on your mind as you were developing those early routines i mean certainly in that show there was a there was a really you know like it was kind of it was it was just intriguing and what's happening here and you know well that that show i treated more like a play yeah i think so i mean the idea of that is that i'd done a short so the year before i think it was the year before yeah so the year before i'd done a you know one of these compilation shows mm. and it was me and Ben Vanderveld and James Acaster at mm. a lunchtime slot uh, at a place called the Tron in in Edinburgh, and because yeah. because it was a lunchtime slot, and a lot of my material wasn't really appropriate for lunchtime, it didn't feel right for lunchtime, mm. uh, and so I think the impact of that was we had a review. You see, a critic wrote that um, my set was a crash course in depravity, <laughs> and of course right. that it wasn't. Uh, it's just that it felt. It, uh, it felt badly timed for the for that lunchtime <laughs> slot, and I think that's what happened there. Um, yeah. But I thought it was that would make it quite a good title. And then the concept of the show, though, was that I'd been accused of being depraved, and I was going to prove that I was not. But of course, theatrically, it was more interesting to me by by in doing so that I revealed that I was. Yeah. Of course, I'm not. But the persona I was occupying was meant to be a depraved person attempting to, to disguise their depravity. That was the that was the idea. Yeah, basically. Yeah, are you, do, are you doing much kind of straight uh, stand-up sets at, um, well, in the next year? I will do. I will prop. I mean, I'm, I, I find myself doing less and less stand-up now. Mm. Although I said, I mean, I say that I did a tour last year. I did my solo show last year on tour, and then I did a week in Edinburgh at the Fringe. Mm. So I'm clearly still doing it, um, and I think I will. Um, I will when we I tour the Titania McGrath show this year. I will probably do the opening spot like the warm-up spot for that I, yeah. don't, I don't know yet but i my instinct is to do that yeah uh and i occasionally do gigs when i get gigs so does it fire your mind doing stand-up now because you do so much with the you know you've been doing so much with jonathan pye to tanya mcgrath does it does it fire you as much as doing those other things no hmm. i think it used to uh i think um i think it might do if i if i wrote something new now hmm. um like I loved doing the last tour at the start when I'd just written it and it was all new and all fresh. But I, I think I get quite, um, I get quite frustrated with doing the same thing too long. So yeah, yeah I you know I'm, I'm not giving up on it, but I'm uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be ever the, the thing that I, 100% prioritise. Yeah. Does your excitement then tend to go really quickly when you're when you've written something? Is the thrill in the writing and the uh, getting the new stuff together? Does it go? Because it used to go with me really yeah, quickly, and it gets. It's, it's not actually. It's the presentation of the material that's most exciting. Mm. And then when you know what works and what doesn't work, and you can pretty much predict how the response is going to be and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, I've done a couple of solo shows which have been largely improvisational, or at least have had a, a, a sort of improvisational core to it, which mm. was a very exhilarating. Um, but I also didn't enjoy it as much. We, I did and I didn't. And what I mean by that is uh, because it had the capacity to go wrong. Mm. Um, that was part of the excitement. But then I I think, yeah, I probably did find it exciting, but I was also I also found it exhausting. So 
uh, the last couple of shows I've done have not had that. They've had they've just been scripted, very very sort of rigorously scripted. But if the improvising stuff excites you, are you going to do more of that? Uh, no, uh, because it also stresses me out. <laughs> so I don't think I will. <laughs> that's a yeah, that's a funny yeah juxtaposition, isn't it? Of, yeah. Um, things that excite you also stress you out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Do you get very kind of stressed or anxious with these kind of things? I don't get nervous anymore. Mm. I used to. I don't anymore. Uh, I don't. Uh, I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking back now. The last. Well, I mean, the last gig I did, I remember being really weirdly anxious all night about it. So clearly it does uh, cause some sort of anxiety. But. Uh, mm. uh, Any particular reason on that gig that there was no anxiety? I think it's just because I was ill. I think it is that. Like, I think if I'm not, if I'm not feeling on form, oh. uh, I I'm worried that it's not going to be very good. So, uh, I don't like I don't like performing below par. I know these comics that can just go on even if they're really sick. Oh. Uh, but I I feel like I'm not. It's not working. I feel like my uh, timing's off and yeah. Or I'll forget the material um, and things like that. So, I think that's probably what it was. Yeah. And you do anything for your mind to keep it healthy or as healthy as possible. Um, I'm, I'm trying to do things that uh, uh, are counterproductive to its health. Uh, insofar as I've, I've, I've uh, tried to stop playing stupid games on my mobile phone. Right. Because I feel it's an utter waste of time. Uh, what games were you playing? Robot Unicorn Attack 2 and Pac-Man and Sonic the Hedgehog, which I downloaded onto my iPhone. It was a mistake. Because, nice. because then you want to... You, I can spend hours on that sort of stuff and it is utterly... Uh, mindless and pointless, uh, and then every now and then I'll just I'll just delete the lot and and I I feel like like so I'm if, if I'm reading a lot I tend to produce better work, yeah. But, it, but of course it's easier to play Pac-Man than to read a book. Um, I do read a lot generally, but I feel like uh, I always feel like I should be reading more. Do you know what? Of all the surprising things that have been said on this podcast, you playing Pac-Man for hours I think is the tops them all. Is it? It's something I would never ever <laughs> ever. I thought you would do. Well, I mean, well, I, I, mean I, I stopped myself. That's the thing. Yeah. You know. but that's the last thing you'd expect of, of you, I think. Uh, someone, you know, you study English, you did a doctorate in, what was it, Renaissance poetry. Yeah. And there you are playing Pac-Man. That's yeah. interesting. I used to do that during my doctorate. It wasn't Pac-Man though, what was it? It was a game where there was a bat and a ball. and it would, You know that game where it destroys the bits of the wall? Yeah. Did a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you think that's less interesting than it is. I think that's very interesting. I think it'll be. (laughs) I trust your judgment on that. (laughs) All right, then. Well, for people that are not interested in that and are more interested maybe in your comedy, let's uh, play in a clip, shall we? From uh, Comedy Unleashed, a night that you founded at Backyard Comedy Club. And here you are in this clip talking about the gay community. I'll be honest with you, I don't. Feel part of the gay community. Do you know? I don't feel part of it. Like, I, I don't like that phrase. I don't like the phrase "gay community." You know? Because I sort of think, what does that even mean? Who's in this gay community? Right? I'm in it. Martina Navratilova's in it. <laughs> Ricky Martin. Doc One. Is that a community? Is it? Or is that travelling a fucking freak show? <laughs> They identify as LGBT, they prefer the LGBT. And actually, I've got a friend who actually self-identifies. Have you heard this? Oh, speaking as an LGBT person, right? You can't be an LGBT person, can you? You can't be lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. 
feelings fucking exhausting. <laughs> And you talk about sometimes being anxious uh, on stage, but generally, is it? Uh, no, I, it, I. Are you fine? Yeah, I mean, I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Yeah, I don't get. I don't get nervous, and I. I just sort of. Mm. I just sort of do it. I suppose partly because even if even if I sense that something isn't quite working, or that the audience are a bit hostile, that can always end up being quite theatrically interesting. Mm. I've had I've had some gigs where, I thought, God, this isn't working at all, uh, and why is that? And that I was quite fascinated. In the, in the process of doing it, I found it quite interesting. Maybe even a little bit funny. Right. You know. So while you were doing it, you were thinking that? Yeah, I mean, the one example that sticks out in my head was I did a preview of a show I wrote called Minimalism. Mm. And I did the preview at the Hen and Chickens in Islington. And it st I stormed it to such a ludicrous degree. I mean, the response from the audience was euphoric. Mm. And so I felt like, you know, on top of the world. And then I did the same preview the next night at the Museum of Comedy, and it bombed so badly um, that the techie who was running both shows even said to me afterwards, I wasn't laughing anymore, it wasn't funny anymore, but you were doing the same thing. <laughs> and so that's quite, I find that interesting because so, so much of the success of stand-up comedy is in the hands of the audience. And in the, uh, the you know, there is a limit to how, how far you can control that. And if the audience just decide it's not for them or there's, some, there's something about the energy in the room and the, 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 the curious beast that an audience is that sometimes it just doesn't work. And, and of course, you can't explain to them and say, actually, you know, this is bizarre because last night, the same <laughs> jokes with the same delivery would, were... That just makes it worse, doesn't it? It makes it worse <laughs> uh, because it looks like you're blaming the audience, which I 100% believe you should. <laughs> but like, it was funny though. I mean, neither reaction is probably legitimate. In a way. Well, I suppose not legitimate, right? But, you know is to be trusted. I don't think either of those, either euphoria or complete silence, are to be trusted as reactions. <laughs> yeah, I wonder with those complete silences that hopefully you and I get a few times, well, but sometimes we do. I wonder whether there is something in your eyes that they can see and is a change. Because you say nothing has changed since that. Well, I what? put it down to, I mean, I was told just before I went on that that room in the Museum of Comedy, because of course the whole venue was a crypt. Yeah, a converted crypt, and I was told that that room was the, the room that was reserved for the dead children. So I wonder whether there was some kind of residual <laughs> spiritual energy, you know, because that's quite a morbid, yeah. a morbid uh, premise, isn't it? I wonder whether everyone dies in that. In yeah, that room. That, well, no, because I've, I've also had a enough. couple of great gigs in that room, so that <laughs> sort of scuppers that theory. <laughs> right. Okay. And how about when you're watching, so Titania McGrath and, uh, you know, these shows, Jonathan Pye, is there, is there a different kind of anxiety or a different thrill you get from that? Um, I, uh, I started in theatre and I liked the relaxation of not having to do anything but just watch it. So it was quite exciting well, for me to I, do that. Well, I mean, I wrote Jonathan Pye for three years and within that three years there were two live tours. Yeah. And I couldn't really sit back and just watch the show because I was always doing the warm-up section. And the yeah. warm-up section was always the first sort of 25 minutes, 30 minutes of the show. So I, I was never able to... Uh, and even if I'd, you know, creep out in the interval and watch the, sec the, you know, the, 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 the main part of the show, I'd always be al almost more watching the audience than, than the show itself, trying to work out what, the, what was working and what was not working and all of that. So there wasn't... Um, so it's not, that's not a relaxing thing to do. And similarly, in, in fact, if I watch anything that I've written, including plays, uh, including stage plays, I, I, I don't 
I'm in an analytical framework of mind. I'm not really watching it to enjoy it. Mm. So I don't know how I would do that anyway because I, I, I'm too familiar with the material. Yeah, I came to see, I think, the first one that you did at the Palladium with Tom Walker and Jonathan Pye. And yeah, seeing that was quite exciting to watch you, knowing you. And well, also it was a big gig. And that and was a the at that point, that was the biggest venue I'd ever played. Yeah. Um, so, because that tour had smaller rooms. So, the second tour, we were playing these 3,000 seater rooms every night. So, so I, be, just got, I just got very accustomed to performing to big crowds. Mm. But at the Palladium, at that point, I, I'd never performed to a crowd of that size ever, not even mm. close, which means that when I walked out, and we only did one night there, of course. Mm. So when I walked out in, on that night, the, the, the applause, the wall of sound was something I'd never experienced before. Mm. So there was something quite of, um, uh, yeah, that, I really enjoyed that night. I thought that was really fun. Yeah, it was, it was brilliant. Yeah, I think I saw you in the interval. Or, do you remember what you did afterwards? That must have been an incredible high, mustn't it? I think we went, we went, we had uh, some drinks somewhere. Oh, it was mm. at the Phoenix Arts Club. Mm. We went and just had drinks and I just chatted to everyone who turned up and, uh, yeah. Does it make you though, does it make you really happy, those kind of things? Uh, as in when you've got a show on and people are watching it and... Or just after the Palladium, for example, you know, are you feeling happiness, euphoria, any of those kind of emotions or it's contentment or well, something I mean, else? Or... You know, it's all, it's all, it's, it's always nice when a gig goes well. Mm. And, and yeah, there's something quite uh, satisfying about, about that. Mm. Uh, more than anything, it means that, you know, because the worst thing, the thing I like the least is when you do a show, a performance, and friends are in the room or family or whatever, and it doesn't work. Yeah. And you've still got to obviously spend the night with them chatting as though nothing's happened. Mm. Uh, and I find that very awkward um, because even though, you know, because whereas it, like at the Palladium, because it went so well, what that does is that just releases any of those troubles and you just, uh, you know, you just, um, you can just enjoy the night. But mm. yeah, I do enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's interesting, you know, it's like saying, does it make you happy? And you, you, I don't know. Um, I'm not getting an immediate feeling that it does. It does for some reason. Um, I you know, because you, you're talking about, oh, at least it didn't go badly. You know? Yeah, that's know. always my response about things. That's always yeah. how I tend to analyse things. Did that go badly? Yeah. So I don't know what that says about me, but you're the psychotherapist. I mean, does stand up does stand up ever make you happy? I, well, does, I, or shows or? Uh, I don't know what happiness is really. Insofar as I, I don't think, well, I don't think happiness is something that happens very often. Hmm. Uh, I think more contentment is what I'm aiming for. There are, yeah, there are moments where I, I, can, I can single out moments in my life where I'm happy and those moments are not, are not in the realm of performance. Okay, so can we go back briefly to before childhood, just mentioning your school and... Before uh, childhood? Before childhood, sorry. Before this is a reincarnation was... thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What were you doing in a previous life, Andrew? Yeah, were you was, happy uh, in the pope previous Alexander life? Pope Alexander VI. <laughs> the worst pope, Pope Alexander VI. <laughs> he was terrible. Yes, before stand-up uh, school. So, where where was this? Where we? Uh, where it was you... in Birmingham. In Birmingham, yeah. Like me, like you. Um, We're now going to speak to each other in Brummie accents. Uh, well, I can't more. do it anymore. I, and this is really embarrassing because my brother still sounds Brummie, for instance. But I can't. I can't even imitate it. All right. Like if I did, 
I think it would be quite embarrassing. I'm not going <laughs> to even going to attempt it. Um, but yes, you've so literally I'm... forgotten your roots, Andrew. Right? <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> yeah, maybe. So you mentioned a brother. What kind of family were you growing up with? And uh, well, my uh, brother. Well, I uh, my my parents split up when I was young, mm. uh, and my brother. Uh, so it was just me and my brother. Yeah. Uh, and then my mum moved back to Northern Ireland when I was a teenager. So uh, okay. she's from, sorry, she's from Northern Ireland. She's from Derry. Yeah. Um, which is why I, 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 I've spent a lot of time in Derry because I go over there all the time. Uh, and yeah. anyway, that's where a lot of the cousins are and her brothers and sisters and people like that. Yeah. Uh, so in, in a review or a write-up of your 2012 show, um, Whatever It Takes, uh, I read somewhere that it kind of you were giving a glimpse of the unhappy child that you were. I don't know whether that was... A yeah. correct write-up, or whether you can remember back to that show, but in terms of that. your childhood, would would you class it as unhappy or kind of? Um, what did I say in the show? I don't know. It was like a preview or a review. I think it's probably a review. Someone said you were giving a glimpse of the unhappy child you once were. Oh, or, interesting. I don't know. I don't even know if I read that review. Mm. Um, well, it's a long time ago. The press liars, we know. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure <laughs> they wouldn't have said it out of nowhere. Uh, did I? Oh, I probably had some jokes about being a fat child. Right. In fact, I think I did. Uh, and they just assumed that meant depressed. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. Um, no. Uh, what, I don't know how you assess your own um, childhood, particularly, because it's, it's the only one you've got. Uh, so I, I think I had a pretty normal upbringing, I reckon. Yeah. I would have thought. Um, uh, until, the, until the family um, fell apart. But I think... You know, that's what makes a stand-up comedian, doesn't it? My, my parents did the same, and yeah, they're just forming stand-up comedians by doing that. That's what they do. Yeah, fifty <laughs> percent of families split up, and fifty percent of people now going to stand-up comedy. Is that seems. right? Is that the latest statistics? <laughs> I think it is. Okay. Half of the country are now Imagine. doing it. Imagine, feels like it, doesn't it? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. You know, some of these things we look back on, and uh, I don't know whether you ever look back to your childhood and that far and think, you know, you talked about Victoria Wood and growing up watching stand-up, which is obviously one of the ways you get into stand-up, but yeah. stand-up is a particular profession that sometimes you do look back on in your child and think, well... I suppose there's a... a I mean, it's quite an egotistical profession, isn't it, being a stand-up, mm. but also, uh, uh, I mean, who doesn't enjoy, as a child, when people laugh at you, not... Oh, sorry, with you. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I was definitely... I, I think definitely, certainly as a young child, I was trying, I enjoyed trying to make people laugh. Mm. And I know that one of my first memories is being on stage in an assembly and doing something that made the audience laugh and enjoying that sensation. And it must be quite important because I can remember exactly what happened. So, um, but I think, uh, yeah, I was just uh, always, yeah, always enjoyed that, that side of it, entertaining, uh, entertaining people. Mm. Uh, I did it with greater abandon, I think, as at primary school, because at that point uh, I had I was not accustomed to failure, and I think when you get accustomed to failure, what you do is you be, you get more reticent about uh, experimenting creatively, and uh, and um, and and then you lose confidence. Yeah. So I think in order to be a good stand-up, you know, obviously half the battle is appearing to be completely confident, yeah. even if you're not. Uh, and I think during my teenage years, I and my secondary school, I think I lost an awful lot of confidence, and that, so therefore I had to build that up again. I think as a stand-up, I think. Yeah, yeah. So after 
after school you went to um, it was Oxford, wasn't it, to do English and... Um, uh, no, I, I, I went to three universities. I went to Aberystwyth University for my undergraduate. Yep. And then York University for my master's and then Oxford University for my doctoral yeah. degree. Yeah. But was stand-up on your mind through all these kind of years at university? Well, I, I was doing it uh, at Oxford. Oh, OK. Uh, I was starting to do gigs. Yeah. So was this when the confidence was coming back? You know, did it take a few years after, uh, you know, well, I mean, later on yeah, at school? And, I think yeah. so. It's a constant, constant thing. You're, you're constantly trying to... Because there's always going to be someone out there who hates what you do, yeah. And 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 you've got to kind of re, um, reconfigure that in your mind that actually it's a positive, because it is a positive. Uh, if you're creating something interesting, it should be dividing audiences. I mm. think. Well, indeed, indeed, yeah. And as you mentioned that, let's talk about dividing audiences and negative comments that you may get online. You know, how many, what kind of part does criticism and kind of online criticism play in your life and your mindset? Uh, I think criticism that is uh, valid, I, I actually welcome. Oh. And I, I, in terms of, and I've, and I've learned a lot from it, um, criticism that comes from a place of ignorance isn't helpful. So you have to ignore that. Oh. Um and that goes for professional critics and, and, you know, if a professional critic comes into a show and, and fundamentally misunderstands the point, you can fairly dismiss, fairly easily dismiss what that critic has to say. Hmm. Uh, um, but some critics, some, I've had some bad reviews that have been really helpful, for instance. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it depends on the quality of the critic. It depends if it's a good critic, they'll make you think and, and it won't be just someone trying to score points and inflate their own ego which is what, unfortunately, a lot of criticism, particularly in comedy, what, of what a, lot, a lot of what passes as comedy criticism, which isn't really criticism. Mm. Uh, in terms of people throwing insults online, that's just all that is. That's just insults, isn't it? Uh, if someone says, I think you're wrong about this and this is why, that's the sort of thing I really welcome because then I can have a discussion about that. Mm. Um, if someone just calls me uh, 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 an ugly freak, uh, there's very little I can do with that. I can't work on that as a kind of... Uh, it's not constructive feedback, is it? So those, those, that's the sort of thing I ignore. And how do you ignore? I mean, you ignore as in you read it and you just... I know, I just block them. Okay. I mean, the, the rule with, online with me is if someone were to say this to me to my face in the street, would I stand there and talk to them a bit more about it and say, that's interesting, let's talk a bit more? Or would I walk away? And if I would walk away from it, then I'll just block them. Yeah. Because I think that's it. Because they're not, they're not uh, approaching you in good faith. And they're just trying to get a, a, a rise from you. And the best thing is just to ignore them. Mm. And how often are you, are you receiving kind of negative comments like this? Every day. But um, it's a big old Twitter sphere out there. And I've annoyed a lot of people. Yeah. So that's sort of inevitable, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, I mentioned this to you before the... Um, before this started, I, this is on my mind and on a lot of people's minds. You know, the tragic death of Caroline Flack uh, this weekend, and I felt devastated. I'm sure many people did, and I didn't know her personally, but a lot of my friends did. And um, it hasn't come out, obviously, the circumstances around it, but if online mm. trolls and lies and hatred from people and the press um, contributed to her doing this, then this is uh, just a complete tragedy and my, my thoughts naturally went back to Matt Richardson who we spoke to in the first episode of this podcast mm -hmm. and he was talking about presenting it with 
Caroline, mm -hmm. and they received, he was talking about around a thousand comments every episode when he was presenting Extra Factor with her. Yes. Um, and they used to go through it in the ad breaks of the, of the episode. And, yeah. and at their worst, people would say they wanted him dead. Yeah. You know? And, you know, you just saying there that you receive these things every day. I mean, it's clearly horrible. It's an understatement. And I just wonder how you, I mean, you, you've gone into how you cope in terms of blocking it. But I just wonder how you do cope when these things come at you well, firstly, every day. Well, firstly, you... you, you have to remember that it's not really you they're attacking that's the first thing mm. it's their the the imagined version of you that they've created for themselves mm. so they don't know who you are and they don't know anything about you but they, they they've created this monster of their imagination so you're not really the target uh and so so there's that mm. uh so you just keep that in mind um and and the other thing is to i mean they it they don't matter, you know, it's it's like they're free to have these misperceptions of me or they want it. It's, it's not it's not going to have any impact on me. Uh, you just have to. I think I would advise anyone for their own mental health just to just to ignore. You, you, no one is entitled to your response. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's, I mean, again, we talked to Matt about this. Why did you look at them? And yeah. uh, he was giving a few reasons well, in terms of there's good comments there. So you're looking for the good comments and then well, you see the bad comments. And I can understand it that it's, I mean, I know from my experience that you know it's there. So it's incredibly hard not to look at but it. But I think you have, I mean, particularly in what I do, because I, because I talk about political issues and cultural issues, and I want to hear what people have got to say about that. Mm. And I want to either refine my views or correct my views when I'm wrong about things. And I, that's only going to happen if I, if I read what people say and engage with what people say. Mm. Uh, um, and so you just very quick, I mean, I'm really like, uh, it's almost like a reflex response now. If I see someone being abusive, I just block them and move on. I don't, I don't even... And it doesn't affect your mindset at all? When, I mean, what... It gets uh, a bit boring. Like if, if it's, and are people saying, again, the most awful things to you? Yeah, yeah, and threats yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, has, has your strength of looking at these online criticisms, trolls, you know, you say you just block and it doesn't affect you mentally. Has that changed over time when you first started to receive these? Was it, was it? Oh, it was you? much worse early on. Yeah. yeah. Like, cause I was surprised at, because it's just not the way I, it would ever occur to me to behave. Mm. I can't imagine in any, in any circumstances, just sending some abusive message to a stranger. It, I, it's so alien to me mm. as a concept that I expect, I sort of just expect that it must be alien to everyone else. Uh, and the sad truth is that, that, that there are a minority. It is a minority, but of course they feel like a majority on Twitter. Hmm. But a minor, for a minority of people, they, they don't have those sort of scruples. Uh, and you particularly get it in the social justice movement and social justice activists. A lot of them lack empathy to an almost sociopathic degree. And so therefore they do uh, uh, lash out in this way. And it's very, I, 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 I'm, I'm endlessly surprised by that, uh, even now when I know, I know it's coming. I'm mm. still, there's something about it that I just think, I can't think what went wrong there in your life. It's, it's odd. Mm. Well, I mean, 5% of people are kind of sociopaths. Well, that's it. Are a psychopath and more. That's it. There's more that's, I get attacked and, and, and spammed from both the far right and the far left who seem to hate me in equal measure. 
Uh, and yet, for some reason, the most vicious things I've ever had have been from the far left, which which feels like it shouldn't be that way. Mm. Uh, but it is. Um, not that the, 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 the far right's comments have been nice. <laughs> mm. You know, um, they think I'm a degenerate, you know. I mean, you use the word vicious there. and It, it, it is vicious. It is horrible. I've heard you talk about free speech and, um, and there being a fundamental bedrock of society, which I think most people would agree with. Yeah. The majority would agree with. And I've also well, I don't know if it is the majority, but... You know. I think it would be the majority, wouldn't it? I think the minority, as you say, they're sometimes more vocal, so you start to think the minority are the majority. But, uh, but I think uh, we have a surprising number of people in this country who do believe in things like hate speech laws and do believe that the police should be involved where some, when somebody says something offensive and that kind of thing. So I think, I don't know if we are as liberal as you think. Yeah, but I, I think, yeah, I mean, I've, again, yeah, I've heard you talk about, yeah, it was the Glasgow police, wasn't it, threatening sanctions with um, things that people write on Twitter. And on the face of it, I agree. Of course I agree. And and it sounds ludicrous to think that anything else could be possible. However, I can't help reflect after what happened this weekend that is there nothing that we should do? Is there nothing that we should do to stop we- your daily abuse that you're getting, the vicious comments that you're getting? You are a strong, you've become a strong person, you say it affected you in the past. You become a strong person that can deflect these and cannot let it affect you too much. But if people are writing vicious things to you, yeah. should there be nothing that we do about that? Yeah, no, I think there's some. Uh, there's what I'm trying to do about that, which is uh, affect a cultural change uh, so that, that people do not behave in that way. I think that's, that's what we should be. I mean, some sort of failure of socialization, isn't it, to behave in that way? So I, th- I think something's gone wrong at a very sort of deep educational level and, and mm. uh, civilizational level. So that's sort of, uh, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm so keen on the improvement of discourse and why I'm so uh, keen to emphasize the importance of decorum and politeness mm. and, and empathy. Uh, so once we restore those sorts of things, you know, that will, that will make a, a, that will do, rather than banning certain forms of speech, um, the reason why that is dangerous is because you can never trust the state to be able to, to tell the difference between malevolent speech and, 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 and just a difference of opinion or an unpopular opinion. Mm. Um, a, a lot of people have difficulty with that. And I think in, history teaches us this. I mean, you don't want to empower the state to, to control people's speech. It always ends badly. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I never really put anything out on Twitter about these kind of things, but I, I was moved to do so over the weekend about what can we do. Yeah. And you, you're sounding more optimistic than I am. I'm pessimistic that because we most, can change. No, but the reason I'm optimistic is because I think most people are good. And mo- I mean... But they are. But um, what do we uh, do about the people that, that aren't? No, okay, that's the, the point. Minority. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think they, rep- they, are clearly, they clearly represent a failure of our system. So I think you can you can you can address the problems within the system and 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 uh, it's socialization. That's what it comes down to. They they have not been effectively socialized as children. And and we do have an in, infantile political culture at the moment, where people think even major mainstream media outlets and politicians think that throwing insults is a satisfactory substitute for an argument, and it's not. Mm. So that's. <laughs> Isn't that kind of giving up on all the adults then that are doing this now? It may be the minority, but they're causing great harm. Yeah. 
Are we giving up on that then? Are we giving up? No, is there anything we can do about the adults and then go to the kids? I mean, I think it's a great thing to do to teach these things in school and see the effects yeah. that it's having. I'm just, I'm asking the question without an answer, of course. I'm just looking at the way I was thinking about these things before this weekend and, and what happened to Caroline Flack. And it's just made me kind of reassess what I think the black and white of what you're saying, which I, before the weekend, I would have absolutely agreed with. And there's nothing you can do in terms of stopping free speech. It's a fundamental. It's the way that the press, I guess, uh, similarly, can say all the lies they like. And if yeah. they're called out on it, they will give a one-line apology on page 24. Yeah, sure. So I think the other thing that is really important is that we have a responsibility within journalism and and, uh, and that we have a, a good journalistic ethic, as many as many reporters do have, by the way. I, I would go so far as to say most do have. Uh, but, you know, you, you have the ones who are willing to behave appallingly uh, just to sell papers. And obviously that's not uh, that is not to be encouraged. That's another flaw that you need to address, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think it's why I'm pessimistic. And is this related to other issues that I've had in kind of in the comedy industry, people kind of sometimes spread shit about each other and yeah. in, in any industry. And so it's not just online abuse. It's not just the press abuse. It's uh, <laughs> colleagues spreading shit about each other. Yeah, yeah. And when you try and address these issues, as I think you said there, people are, well, fundamentally, it's, it's very difficult to change people's minds. It's yes. very difficult. I've heard you use the word people are impervious to reason. Some things are not up for debate. Yes. People fundamentally won't change their won't change their minds and that's why I'm pessimistic. And that is that is also a failure of socialization. If you if you if you enter into adulthood with a closed mind. Yeah. That is that is also a failure. It's a big sign of failure. And impossible you know you you've got you it, part of civilizations that you're open to discussion and, and, and to be challenged and to change your mind when, when necessary. Yeah. I mean, when it, when it comes to things like hateful speech, I mean, we already have uh, legal restrictions, don't we? We have, we have the necessary restrictions. Like when I talk about free speech, I'm not talking about perjury or libel or slander or blackmail or whatever, you know, that we, or harassment, you know, these things are already illegal. Um, so I'm talking about the expression of unpopular opinions. So what is the alternative? I mean, someone can be driven to the, the, the edge of despair uh, by, by other people saying nasty things. But what is the alternative? Is the alternative to criminalise anyone who says anything nasty? Because how, how, how in practice could that work? Not maybe that extreme, but does it have to be black and white? Do we have to... It's not criminalise anything that people say, but if people are giving you daily vicious tweets that there's no sanction for this... Well, that's why that's what the block button's for. That's why I block people. That's what I do. But then they'll move on to the next person who maybe won't be as strong as you. But the it, it doesn't... I don't think it takes strength to block, though, does it? I mean, I think that's the... the the, the way that the platform should work... It, the, no, the no, the not strength to block, strength to ignore. Strength oh, I see to what you mean. Read I see the message and it can be the worst message. Yeah. And, and I agree with you. It's, you know, I don't like the fact that, we, that there are these people in society. You know, <laughs> that sounds like I want to wipe them out. I don't mean that. I mean, I don't like the fact that people feel that it is acceptable to say the most 
horrendous things to other people. I don't, I, I, you know, I'd rather we didn't live in that society. That is, however, the cost of free speech, isn't it? The cost of freedom, full stop, is that uh, some people are going to exercise their freedom in an irresponsible way. I, I don't see a, a solution to that. You're, de you're dealing with human nature, which, you know, I, 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 I have to take the liberal stance on this because I don't think there's any, there's any other way, actually. I don't think there is, without veering into authoritarianism. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I was quite kind of black and white with you a few days ago, and I've started to change. Do you think anything like this will ever change that opinion? That you have, I would I have just, to. I would like, have to be persuaded of it, but yeah. um, I, I, someone would have to present to me a solution to this. Well, you know, if someone is attacking you viciously online and then moves on to the next person, then moves on to the next person, celebrities, stand-ups, whoever they are, hmm. that there is no sanction. Just is now starting to feel slightly wrong to me that it, it wouldn't have done a few days ago. Again, that's that's. I don't see what possible solution there can be. There are going whenever there are human beings, there are going to be a a minority, very small minority, among them who are spiteful, bitter, unpleasant characters. Yeah, and um, the only solution to that is to no longer have humanity. I think. <laughs> I think the minority. The the problem with the minority is it's there are billions of people in the world, and the mi minority is maybe hundreds of thousands, millions yeah. of people. Yeah. And that's the minority we're thinking about. And if we do nothing, then that was my pessimism that this will never right. change. You can change your own behavior, but you're almost preaching to the already converted, already but, slightly converted. You're not doing anything about the problem, really. But I come back to what can possibly be done other than uh, push for greater socialization in education and, uh, and you know, uh, call out, for want of a better phrase, the people who do this when they do it. I don't. I don't see what other. Because you're ruling out criminalizing anything like yeah. that. Yeah, I don't see what other solution there is. Any kind of criminal legislation against what people say online is bound to be abused and exploited by a, a, a corrupt government, eventually. Whether it's this one or the next or the next, it's it's. You, you don't want that precedent in law. I don't know. It's, uh, as I say, I'm thinking about it more in shades of grey than I did before the weekend. I'm not sure about anything now. It's been a it's been a horrible few days really thinking about this kind of thing and friends of mine that have been affected and I don't know, it makes you it just makes you reassess things that maybe Well that's not a bad thing. Black and white I don't on, think that's yeah. a, I don't think that is a bad thing at all. I think it's 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 I think it's really worth reassessing these things and yeah. continually thinking about it. Mm. Okay, well let's move on. It would be hard to do an interview with you just without briefly mention woke and are you doing a tour, uh, Resisting Wokeness, with Douglas Murray soon? Uh, in uh, oh, May, May and June. Yeah. So is the, is the aim of that, is that, uh, what, I mean, what is the aim of that? When I, when I think of stuff you're doing, it's entertainment, yeah. but is this entertainment? No, or? this is more a, a long-form political discussion show, and the idea of this is uh, to try to stimulate a discussion and a debate about an issue that... Uh, people are unwilling to, or at least hostile towards the possibility of a discussion, you know. So it's, uh, you know, we live in a, a country where people are very nervous about uh, being honest mm. uh, about their views. And, and we want to ask why, how that has happened 
uh, what that what the impact of that is for society, which I have to believe is a very bad impact on society. Mm. Why we've created this culture where of division and and um, you know um, it's a kind of sensorial atmosphere where people are, are, are you know I I think that's those are the issues that we want to discuss. I think when 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 people feel nervous about telling the truth <laughs> for fear of of being dogpiled or for fear of losing their jobs or for fear of uh, having their livelihood destroyed or losing friends or whatever, then we're in a really parlous state. And so the point of the, the, the point of the tour is to open up those discussions. So I hope lots of people with different perspectives uh, turn up. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I miss your stand up though. You know, yeah, I know you say it excites you less. I'd like to see. I'd like to see more of it. Well, it? for now, I mean, but maybe, maybe next year I'll be all fired up and I'll be like, I'm sick of all this woke stuff. I'm going to do something. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do something. I mean, if I did another full stand-up show, it would have nothing to do with any of this stuff. Yeah. Do you ever get sick of it in terms of the the almost monster you've created? I'm sure it's good for you in many ways. Uh, but I mean, I saw I saw a program on Sky, uh, Divided, uh, and it was you and tweets of Titania McGrath, or yours, Titania McGrath, were being put up in front of you, and you were asked to justify what was funny about it, what the target was, and I kind of felt, do you actually enjoy going to this level of, don't you just enjoy, you know, entertaining, uh, and the kind of, uh, the majority, as we say, majority, minority, majority of people are just going to look at these tweets and be entertained by them, totally get the joke. No, that's it, I know, I'm, I'm constantly asked to explain them. For the minority. Yeah. Um, so it's... And I wouldn't normally do it because I actually think it's really boring to explain your jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a really boring thing to do. I was looking at you there thinking, you can't be enjoying this. Why? But why do you do it? Because, then? I mean, I've actually written... I've even written articles explaining what the char- point of the character is. And the reason is mm. because it is so often misinterpreted. Um, and I want there, I want there to be clearly online a clear expression of what of intent i suppose uh because the misinterpretations are so serious and so far off the mark uh but again does that sorry does that come back to they're never going to change are they no i know they're not they're not um i but yeah i i I don't mind it i don't i you know that, that was i mean that wasn't it wasn't like someone came up to me after a comedy show and said can you explain this joke to me it was an interview about the culture war, wasn't it? So, yeah. and he was talking about, and in fact, he was, I think he was just playing devil's advocate, to be fair. He was talking about the common misinterpretation that, that the character is punching down at minorities, mm. which is, which is, uh, you know, I mean, anyone who has an understanding, a vague understanding of satire knows is, is not the case, but, yeah. I, but there are, you know, there is a kind of literal mindedness, particularly amongst the social justice activist group, uh, that, that sort of cult where they don't well you know you know they're not the target audience they're the they're the target mm. so they so they they they're not going to find it funny they're obviously not going to i would be really surprised if they did but more than that they find it hostile they take it as though it's a sort of you know they they put the worst possible interpretation onto it that they can think of mm. uh, and you know it's a shame i'll do an anti-racist tweet which they'll tell me is a racist tweet like literally they'll spin it around 100% you know, mm. uh, so some people, some people like that, you just ignore, because uh, having to explain jokes is very tiresome, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't uh, it? I, 
I, I don't know how you cope with all this, to be honest. Most <laughs> comedians will just be going out there and just trying to tell their jokes. And you have to deal seemingly with so much. You, 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 I, would just imagine, I can just imagine you putting out a tweet of 280 characters and knowing you've got three weeks of, obviously I'm exaggerating, but explaining <laughs> it and news stories about no, this I mean, particular. That doesn't, how, I mean, look. And Pac-Man, of course. There's always Pac-Man. <laughs> Maybe that's why I retreat into Pac-Man. Because it's easier than having to go and wade through all this stuff. No, look, it doesn't. Like, I mean, look, every now and then you get you get some people who will send, who will. There's a tweet that will. The trouble is some of some of the because Titan. I'm I'm trying to make a broad point about Titania and the social justice movement generally being very divisive and and actually having a kind of soft racism at its core. Mm. And so therefore, when she said there was one tweet I did at Christmas, which I, loads of people were posting back at me saying, this is a racist tweet. This is a racist tweet. And of course, it was attacking. It was attacking Titania's racism. Mm. That's what it was doing. But, of course, you know, look, I wouldn't have asked, I wouldn't have to explain it to you. But uh, <laughs> and, and at some point you get kind of just a bit a, a bit bored of it. But uh, mm. but also I don't want people thinking I'm a racist. So I, maybe I, maybe I should just maybe I'm, I'm wrong. To, maybe I'm wrong to explain it so much because I. You know, yeah, maybe I should just leave it. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, there is a danger of inflating the minority opinion and, yeah. and with all these things, that's a common thread in things we've talked about. Well, uh, also, yeah, and and I think because I'm so often mischaracterised, does it maybe not serve my cause well to respond every time? Sometimes I should just leave it mm. and just let them uh, enjoy their fantasies, maybe. Yeah, I mean, if we can go just briefly as we near the end, to back to happiness. Does any of this, because as I say, I look at you in these interviews trying to justify things. I'm thinking, is any well, of this making you happy or content or... I'm only, but I'm only I'm attempting sure. to justify things because people come to me and ask for the justification. Of course. And I'm just not the sort of person that, you know, I, 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 if people come to me politely about that, then I'll do it. Mm. You know, I'm just, I don't see why... And you don't mind doing that. It's just like, but it's... Because I can imagine the huge success of Jonathan Pye and the huge success of it would make you happy, but all these things, I don't know. There are, there are. Yeah, but 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 part of the reason for doing Titania is because I perceive there to be these these problems in society that I wish weren't there, and mm. um, I'm not suggesting that I can fix them, but I think by exposing exposing it and opening up the debate which is what i'm trying to do with the tour with douglas as well yeah that it can make some sort of contribution to trying to restore social liberalism or, or at least a, a, an awareness of social liberalism and and you know if it can make any kind of contribution in, in that direction then that's a good thing surely i mean i mm. i don't you know uh and is that the you say you don't think it will change completely but is that the ambition that you do leave your mark there and you do change things uh, I mean I suppose it, I, I don't what's the ambition I don't think there is I don't think it's as calculated as that insofar as I think I just I just say what I want I just say what I believe and I, I, I also feel a kind of moral obligation that might be misguided but I feel a moral obligation to say what I believe in certain you know it's that thing of you see an injustice and I feel compelled to speak out about it whether it has an impact or not is sort of besides the point. I think I would do so even if no one was listening, just oh. because it would it would make me feel uh, a bit dirty not to, I think. I think that's the way I see it. Yeah. I can see what the social justice movement is doing to our society. I can see how, 
the divisions it's creating, I can see how it's um, effectively making us a more racist society and a more kind of um, uh, closed-minded society and all of this sort of stuff going on. And I, it, that sort of stuff bothers me. I've always uh, hated bullies. I don't like them. I don't, I don't like letting them get away with it. So, you know, to, I mean, Titania is effectively a response to bullying behaviour, isn't it? It's it's uh, it's mocking the bullies, and of course when, that's why they come after you so so forcefully when you do it, you know. Mm. But that's also why so few people are, are prepared to to speak out against it because they don't want to they don't want to be one of, one of the ones who gets cancelled to use the uh, the phrase, and uh, and uh, and I think if if more people stand up against that stuff, then it becomes less likely to happen. Yeah, that's that's the point. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you for coming here today. I, I've, lo- you know, I love all of your work. Um, well, thank you, Jonathan Pye and uh, Tony McGrath. But I do love your stand-up. Um, I do, I do hold your stand-up right up there with all the. I mean, I've heard you talking about stand-ups that you like, like Gervais and David Baddiel, like people pushing the boundaries. And he's talking about in his new show about things that we've talked about today. Oh, like trolls, and it's called Trolls, not the Dolls. I think. Well, I think he gets a lot of anti-Semitic abuse. Yeah. Uh, on on Twitter. He handles it very well, though. Like I, I, the way that he he picks his battles wisely. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, I've learned not to respond to all of them. Just, just. I mean, the really aggressive ones, like the extreme ones from sort of the far right or whatever. You just, just block, get rid. You know, just keep it out of your timeline. Yeah. But um, you know, so if you every now and then, if 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 someone says something that's quite revealing about a broader problem, then I'll normally respond because I think it, that does some good in a way. Not to, not to. I don't want to initiate dog piles or anything like that. But mm. if it, but if it's a, if someone is, has been particularly vicious and nasty, and it, and it, and by by responding to it, I make a broader point. Then I'll normally, then I'll, then I'll draw attention to it. Yeah. And is there a, is there an ambition with stand up along with alongside the ambitions of all these other things? Is there an ambition to? Be. I mean, I regard you as just such a great stand up. Is there an ambition to be re- regarded as a? Uh, great stand-up by a larger audience and or I, is, uh, as you say does that not fire you i don't think i've i don't think i've even thought in those terms mm. i think i just tend to do creatively speaking whatever feels right at any given moment yeah and that's why i'm saying i'm not ruling out doing another stand-up show um it's whatever whatever i i mean sometimes it's like paying the bills so you do whatever job comes up yeah but you've got to balance it with with that and uh and the the passion projects don't you uh i mean i've just written another book as titania which is a a children's book Mm. and that felt like something i really wanted to do and uh yeah you just sort of um and i'm very keen to do i'm i'm very keen to do this tour with douglas and just because i think i can probably get a lot out of it in terms of my understanding of the situation and and it will help because i'm writing a non-fiction book Mm. uh, about the culture war uh, so that will be the next thing, but of course that won't have a comedic element. And then after that, I don't know. I've I've got no kind of perception of what what it would be after that. Uh, I imagine it'll be something very different from Titania. Maybe it will be stand up show. I hope so. Do you think? I hope so. Just about like something completely nothing to do with anything I've done so far. Well, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean. Am I the only one? I think I might start pestering you daily. Yeah, do with it. all these people going. I love your stand-up, Andrew. Do it. Maybe that's a maybe that's a a good thing. 
to hear. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, I absolutely love it. I always, I always mention you. I mention you very often. Even in, and, even um, now, when to mention me is... I'm, sh- uh, I'm sure it's done nothing for your career, but um, <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, that's all we can do. We can change our own behaviour. We can start spreading lots of love instead of hate. That's pretty much what I believe in a nutshell. Hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. That is our show for today. Join us again next week for more Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us, and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews. Psychomedy is written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, BSC in Psychology, produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pop People Productions, theme music by Mike as well. So that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe, rate, and listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed in those video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. Follow us on social media at Pop People UK, at PsychomedyPod, at Nathan Cassidy, and at AndrewDoyle underscore com. Thank you, Andrew. Get back to that Pac-Man now. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Lots of love. See you again next week.